Hey, did somebody call a doctor? Because the metaphysician is in. College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your host, John Johnson. You know, when I get asked who's my favorite senior fellow teaching in the Magnus Fellowship right now, of all the great ones we have, it's like, it's such a silly question because it's like, who's your favorite kid? And, you know, why do you even ask such a question? Because of course the answer is Dr. David Arias. Uh, slightly kidding. He's, he's uh, fantastic. They're all fantastic, but really something about the way Dr. Arias can deal with a text, engage a student, provoke wonder, and really respect a question is worthy of admiration. So today we're listening in on a portion of his metaphysics class that's strictly Q&A. So the fellows are asking uh, him questions. They can discuss amongst themselves. Uh, he, he can pitch things back to them. And chances are you're going to hear questions that you have had yourself. So it's really an episode worth sticking around for. If you want to join these courses live, they are live interactive, capped at 25 students to preserve intimacy and discussion. You can become a fellow today at Magnus Institute. Org. It is completely free. It's as free as it is freeing. MagnusInstitute.org. Here's the Q&A. Enjoy it. All right. So what, what's on your minds in terms of, in terms of the text? Uh, where would you like to take the discussion and our consideration of what we read for tonight and what we've talked about thus far? I had a quick, hopefully a quick question to start out. In the opening of this section he talks about god and angels and the soul as all as separated substances and i wondered why he calls all three things substances when i think only angels are really substances at least on thomas's view or a mature thomas or i don't know okay yeah that that's a really good question that's a really good question so i think in order to see why he calls them substances we we have to ask ourselves well what does he have in mind here by by the term substance, huh? And if we take substance to signify whatever subsists or, or anything that subsists or that in some sense exists uh, through itself as opposed to uh, what exists in another as in a subject, then I think we could say that, that all three, God, angels and the separate human soul are substances. But we'd want to make this distinction, <clears throat> excuse me, and I, I think I kind of wonder if this is if this is something on your on your mind, Joe, that when we compare the separate human soul to an angel, say, and and the same would apply if we were to compare a separate human soul to God, we see that there's this difference between a separate human soul and an angel. A separate human soul is not, so to speak, a, a complete substance, whereas an angel is. And and St. Thomas Aquinas in, in various texts, for example, in in, in the Prima Pars, the, the De Homine part of the Prima Pars, question 75 and following. Yeah, that's what I have in mind. Okay, good. Yeah, so, so in, in that part of the Summa, and also in, in various disputed questions, he'll bring up this, this question, uh, he'll ask whether the soul, whether the human soul is a, a hawk oliquid. That's the term that he uses in Latin. 
whether the human soul is, is a this something. And, and that's another term. Hawk all liquid is another, another term for, for substance or in the term or in the words of the categories, primary substance, right? And he ends up making a distinction. He'll say, he'll say Hawk all liquid uh, can be taken in two ways. So it can take, it can be taken to mean just any subsistent thing. So, as long as something is subsistent, it counts as, as a hawk aliquid in some sense of the term. But hawk aliquid can also be taken to mean a subsistent thing that's complete in the nature of a species. And so he'll say, in, in the first of those ways, you can say that the separated human soul is a hawk aliquid, just like you, you might say, in a sense, a, a part of a substance, like a, a man's arm or a man's leg or something like that. Is, is a hawk all liquid because it's something subsistent. Now, of course, the, the parts of a substance, like an arm or a leg, they depend on the whole substance uh, for, their, for their subsistence, for their substantial existence. Uh, the, the soul does not depend on the body for its, for its uh, substantial existence, right? But there's a similarity there in as much as, as, as neither a part of a substance like an arm or leg, or the soul is a complete substance according to the nature of, of the species, right? Given that, you, you, can, you can say without any disrespect to, to St. Peter right now, you can say, well, right now, uh, St. Peter ain't the man he used to be, right? Uh, because his, his soul, his soul uh, existing in heaven is not a complete human person, right? He, he's an in, his soul is an incomplete human person. Okay, so it's a hawk all liquid in that in that qualified sense. The separated human soul is an angel. By contrast, is a hawk all liquid in that in that more full blooded sense, right? You can say an angel is a this something that's in as much as it's something subsistent that's complete in the nature of of its species. It's in that latter sense that you'd say this man. Okay, the, the body-soul composite that is St. Peter or that is Socrates is a, is a hawk all liquid. But just the soul of St. Peter, the soul of, of Socrates, is not a hawk all liquid in that, in that fullest sense of the term. Yeah, so that's, yeah, I, I figure that's kind of what you had on, on, on your mind. So you have to make that distinction and say that the soul is a substance in some sense of the term, but it's not a substance in exactly the same sense uh, as, an, as an angel is, because it's, it's just the, the formal part of, of man. Now, that being said, I, I think it's also important to, to point this out. This is something uh, cool that St. Thomas gets into and that the commentators get into too, guys like Cajetan and uh, Francis Sylvester Ferrara and others. When, when they consider how existence, substantial existence stands to the human soul, and how that same substantial existence stands to the, the soul body composite, the, they all point out that, that in the case of the human soul, the act of existence, it belongs to the soul, they'll say, uh, primo et per se, firstly and, and through itself. And that one, of act, that one act of existence that belongs to a man, it belongs to the man's body through his body being informed by his soul. So the active existence that belongs to Socrates, that active existence is communicated to his body uh, through his soul being in his body. 
Uh, so that's, I think that's, that's noteworthy, right? And when the soul separates from the body, well, that act of existence that belongs to it, prima per se, is, is that through which the soul, the separate human soul, uh, subsists apart from the body. I throw that out there as well. Yeah. Anyways, very, very good question. Now, a lot of those details, which are very important, they're, they're just, they're not covered here explicitly in the Dante. And I think, I think part of that is just because of the nature of the work that Dante is meant to be a, a very brief look at, at a lot of these issues. And so a lot of those distinctions, they only come up explicitly in, in other works of St. Thomas, where he's considering some of these, some of these things, uh, you know, in far more detail, again, like the, the, the Summa, uh, well, both, both Summa and also the, the disputed questions, for example, the disputed questions on the soul. That's a, that's a great place to look if you want to find, you know, more information on, on how uh, the soul uh, in separation from the body can be considered to be a substance uh, and so on. Oh, another thing. Oh, go ahead, Joe, if you're going to. Oh. Yeah, I was just saying thanks. Uh for that and then i mean and regarding the question then of god as a substance i mean if he's something subsistent a whole call quit in that sense but because I mean, there's no he's in no way like a substance i mean he doesn't bear accidents he doesn't he's not in a, he's not in a genus he's, he's not he doesn't fulfill a species at all right any of these other things exactly no that's that's very that's very true and and there, there are some texts where, where St. Thomas will, he'll, he'll parse out, so to speak, different aspects of substance uh, in, in pursuit of what, of what belongs to the notion of substance most formally. And, and I'm, I'm glad you brought up the notion of, of, of supporting accidents or standing, uh, standing under accidents, <clears throat> because one thing that we can come to see once we once we understand that in God there can't be, and therefore there isn't, the, the composition of substance with accidents is this, that we can come to see that what's most formal to the notion of substance is subsistence, okay? Or if you were to put that in terms of the categories, not being in another as in a subject, right? Not existing uh, in a subject, huh? And we we see as a consequence of that that bearing accidents or supporting accidents or being the subject of accidents or being able to be the subject of accidents, that's something that's in a way secondary uh, to to substance. Okay. So even if even if that's something that we recognize about the substances that are familiar to us, you know, kind of right away, we say, hey, look, you know, Socrates is the subject of accidents. Well, that's true, but that's something that belongs to him insofar as he's a created substance. That's not something that belongs to him just qua substance, huh? If that makes sense. If that were something, if, if being a subject of accidents were something that belonged to substance precisely as substance, then, then everything, everything which is a substance, including God, would have to have that capability, but God does not have that capability, right? So that helps us to see that in order for something to be the bearer of accidents, the subject of accidents, uh, that something has to 
has to be deficient in some way, it has to fall away from the perfection that you find in the first substance uh, that, that is God. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's great. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. No, thanks for bringing that up. That's, that's an awesome consideration. And by the way, one thing that St. Thomas does, I think from here on out in, in the Dante, this is something just to keep on your radar screen as, as you continue to read, is now that he's, now that he's ascended intellectually uh, to God, to, to, the, to the one being, the one substance whose very essence is to exist, he'll start comparing all other, all other things uh, that exist to God and showing how in one way or another they fall away from the perfection that you have in God. And that's something that, that I think is characteristic of the metaphysician's uh, view of reality. The metaphysician as the wise man, this goes back to what Aristotle established right at the beginning of the metaphysics. The wise man, he, he knows all things and he thinks of all things in terms of, of their first principles and causes. Okay. And the, and the first principle and cause of all things is God himself. And so it really does belong to the metaphysician to try to look at all things other than God in terms of God, right? And, and to compare all other things uh, to God and to show how they are like God, but also kind of fall away from God. Okay, so what we're seeing here is that the metaphysician, he ascends to God intellectually, and then he, in a sense, descends from God intellectually uh, when, he, when he considers creatures. And by the way, in, in, case, in case that, that language makes you think of something that Plato describes in, in the Republic, I, I, think, I, I think that's, that's fair because it seems to me that, that Plato very much has that, that, that metaphysical uh, movement of the mind uh, in, 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 his, in his thinking, right? He's thinking that, that the guardians, right? The complete guardians or the perfect guardians in the Republic, that what they do is they, they come out of the cave and they, they see the form of the good. But once they see the form of the good, what do they, what do, they do? Well, they now look at all things in terms of the form of the good, right? They're able to view all things uh, in, in the light of the intelligible sun, so to speak. And, and ultimately, they'll go and tell others uh, about that and maybe be killed as a result or something like that. Or if you think of the divided line as, as one of the great images that he gives us in the Republic, which tells us basically the same account that the allegory of the cave does, he talks about how there, there's a movement from the lower parts of the divided line up to the, the highest part, and then there's a movement kind of back down. So there's this, this movement of, of ascent and, and descent. And, and I think we're, we're seeing that, you know, in kind of in, in practice here in St. Thomas, right? St. Thomas is actually doing the science, the metaphysics that, that, that Plato was describing in very general terms. St. Thomas is doing that and, and he's showing us in practice how we ascend to God and then descend to God and consider creatures. So it's really cool to see that, that harmony between, between Aristotle and, and St. Thomas here in the, in the text of, of St. Thomas. Sorry, I, did I say St. I, I meant to say the, the harmony between Aristotle and Plato in the text of St. Thomas, so I didn't say that before. Okay, very cool. 
and anyone else have comments or questions or things they'd like to look at uh, in, in more detail? I had sort of a terminological question on um, paragraph 84. St. Thomas makes references to possible intellects. Um, I wasn't quite clear on what a possible intellect was. Okay, yeah, very good. So let's just look at that text uh, since you brought it up. And, and, and hopefully I'll, I'll be able to yeah, explain that notion uh, in, in light of what he says there. So he says, and because there is potency in the intelligences as well as act, it will not be difficult to find a multitude of intelligences, which would be impossible if there were no potency in them. Okay, so there St. Thomas is saying, I think something along these lines, I haven't gotten to your text yet, but he's just saying that because there's a composition of potency and act in the angels, it's, it's possible in principle for us to find a multiplicity of angels and not, and not just one. But then he goes on to talk about the possible intellect after that. He says, whence the commentator of Eroes says in his considerations on the third book of On the Soul, that if the nature of the possible intellect were not known, we would not be able to find multitude among the separated substances. Separated substances, therefore, are distinct from one another according to their grade of potency and act in such a way that a superior intelligence, which is nearer to the first being to God, has more act and less potency, and so with the others. Okay, so here I think what St. Thomas is referring to is, is something that comes up in the De Anima, in, in Aristotle's work, On the Soul. Uh, so he's saying that, that we learn about the nature of the possible intellect there, and it's through learning about the nature of the possible intellect in, in the study of the soul that we can, that we can come to understand how, how there, can be, uh, there can be higher angels and lower angels. Okay, so without further ado, what, what on earth is the possible intellect? Well, so in On the Soul, in the De Anima, uh, in particular in Book 3, uh, chapters four and five, Aristotle gets into into two really distinct intellectual powers that we find in the human person. Okay, one of them ends up getting called in the tradition the possible intellect, and the other ends up getting called the the agent intellect. So, in chapter four of of Book Three of On the Soul, that's where Aristotle considers. Uh, the possible intellect, and really in chapter five, he gets into the Asian intellect. So what is the possible intellect? Well, the possible intellect is a power, a natural power of the human mind or of the human intellect, which, which power is, is receptive of any and all forms of material substances. Okay, so there's there's a kind of likeness St. Thomas will sometimes point out, following Aristotle, between a likeness, not not a sameness, but a likeness between the possible intellect and first matter. So he'll say, just as first matter or prime matter outside the, the mind, right, is is able to receive into itself successively any substantial form that could belong to any material substance. Well, so in a similar way, in an analogous way, 
there's there's this potency in the human intellect to receive uh, into itself any and all forms of material substances. Okay, so when I when I come to know, let's say, the nature of a dog or the nature of a cat or the nature of a triangle or whatever, I, I come to know the nature of this or that thing through receiving into my possible intellect the form of a dog or the form of a cat or the form of a triangle. Okay, Where in me do I receive that form? Well, in my possible intellect. And then you might ask, okay, well, if that's the case, what's what's the need for, or is there a need for uh, the agent intellect, what's called the agent intellect? Well, the agent intellect is that intellectual power in us, human knowers, whereby our minds give a kind of uh, immaterial mode of existence to the forms that are, first of all, in our internal senses. So kind of the way it works is, is this, that, that you, you see many particular things of the same kind through your external senses. So I see, uh, for example, you know, many different dogs, Fido, Rex, Toto, etc. right? I, I see this particular dog, that particular dog, etc. And, and then I, I retain those particulars in, in some of my internal senses, like in my imagination, in my memory, okay? And my internal senses just kind of naturally bring together uh, like images, if you will, right? Or, or similar uh, particular forms, which they retain. And at some point, and this all happens just naturally, at some point, you might look at it this way, my Asian intellect strips the form of, of dog, okay, or the nature of dog from the particular characteristics that are bound up with it in, in Fido and in Rex and in Toto. And, and I receive the universal form of dog uh, into, my, into my possible intellect. And then having received that, that abstracted nature in my possible intellect, I can now think of what's common to all dogs, right? I know or understand what's common uh, to all dogs. And I, I do that, that act of understanding, I perform that act of understanding of what is common to all dogs through my possible intellect, okay? So I receive into my possible intellect the nature of dog, and then I understand or think about the nature of dog through my possible intellect. And Aristotle is very explicit about that in, uh, again, De Anima, uh, book three, chapter four. And St. Thomas comments on that. So he kind of lays that out in his commentary, that doctrine. He lays it out way better than, than I just did. And so I think that's, that's what he has in mind here. Uh, that's what St. Thomas has in mind here. He, he's saying, well, if, if the human possible intellect were unknown to us, then we really wouldn't have any basis for understanding or for knowing how you can have higher angels and lower angels. And I think the way St. Thomas is applying that doctrine of the human possible intellect uh, to an understanding of the angels is somewhat along these lines. He's saying that in angels, you find a kind of intellectual power or, or potency. Okay, so 
in in every angel, there's there's an intellect, but there are some angels that are lower than others and some that are higher than others. And you might put it this way, that in the angels that are lower than others, there's a, a kind of intellectual potency that they have native to them uh, to having more concepts than the angels that are higher than them. The angels that are higher have an intellectual potency which has an openness to, to having fewer concepts than the lower angels. Now, I want to be careful here that I don't, I don't lead you into a misunderstanding because there's, there are many profound differences between the human intellect and angelic intellects. One of them is this, that, that in us, we have an intellectual potency uh, prior to having concepts received by that intellectual potency, right? So St. Thomas and Aristotle, they, they tell us that the human intellect uh, is first of all, like a tabula rasa. It's like a blank slate. And only afterwards uh, does it receive does it receive the natures of things into it. That's not so with, with angels. So angels are created by God with a given set of concepts or intelligible species, as, as they're sometimes called. And the lower angels have more intelligible species in their intellects, okay, or lower angels are created with a greater number of intelligible species in their intellects than are the higher angels. But here's the thing. The higher angels, even though they have fewer intellectual concepts than do the lower angels, they understand way more through those fewer concepts than do the lower angels. Now, here's something really awesome, okay? As you as you go up the angelic orders, you find angels that have uh, progressively speaking, uh, fewer and fewer uh, concepts. But again, they understand more through those fewer concepts. Now, uh, you get above the seraphim to God. How many concepts does God have? He has one, right? And that one concept is what we call the eternal word. So through his one divine eternal word, who is God the Son, God understands himself exhaustively, and he understands exhaustively all things that can be, all things uh, that are. Okay, so that's, that's really awesome when you, when you think about that. By the way, a, a friend of mine, he pointed out that you can make the case that there's a seventh mark of the wise man based on, on what I just mentioned to you. So there are the six marks, the six chief marks of the wise man, you know, that we talked about uh, early on. Wise man understands all things, even those difficult things, etc. Okay, the seventh mark of the wise man, which I think you find at least implicitly in Aristotle and St. Thomas, is that it belongs to the wise man to be able to say a lot in, in a few words. Huh? And if you keep in mind that another name that's given to a concept in in the tradition is an interior word. Okay, sometimes the concept is called uh, the, the an interior word. Sometimes it's called uh, the verbum cordis, the word of the heart. It bears that name word. Well, you, you see that that seventh mark of the wise man is, is verified uh, in, in the knowers 
that exist, right? We as human knowers, we understand a lot of things, but through a lot of interior words. And as you go up through the angelic hierarchy, you know, the wiser and wiser the angels get, the more they understand in fewer words until you get until you get to, to God, who has uncreated wisdom itself. He understands everything uh, through one word, and he expresses everything uh, to himself, expresses everything uh, intellectually to himself uh, in just one word. So that's kind of cool, uh, just as a, as, as a footnote to some of the things that, that we've talked about. Anyway, yeah, that sorry. is pretty cool. I, sorry, I got, I got really carried away uh, with, with your question. Um, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, you were just asking about the possible intellect. Anyways, is, is, that, is, is that okay in terms, of, in terms of just the explanation of the possible intellect? I don't want to miss the, the, you know, the tree for the forest here. No, that, that more than answered my question. And really, one of the things I like about long explanations like that is I end up learning way more than I thought to ask. So thank you. Sure, absolutely, absolutely. Any other, any other uh, questions, comments, uh, tangents, or anything else like that? Yeah, uh, I was hoping to ask something. I was thinking about this, and um, I was wondering in what way we can say that something that doesn't exist can be in potency. Yeah, that's a <laughs> that's a really good question. That's a good question. So. Seems to me we, we we have to make we have to make some distinctions to be sure. If we're thinking of something that can be, which has matter as one of its constituent principles, it seems to me that we can in, intelligibly speak of that that something in some sense existing within the potency of matter. Okay, let me give an example of, of what I have in mind. Let's say you have the the potter, right, who has the the wet clay, and he's going to make that clay pot. Well, you can say that the clay really does have within itself uh, the potency to receive the shape of a pot. Okay, so that that potency is really there in the clay, and in, in an analogous way, if we're talking about a possible material substance, you could say the material that we call first matter, it really does have the capacity to acquire or to receive, let's say the substantial form of, of a dog, right? Or of a, or of a cat or something like that. And so, so you can speak of it as really having that potency in itself, or in the case of prime matter, be better to say it really is that potency itself. Now, if we speak of God bringing into existence through an act of creation something like a, a full-blown material substance or a human soul. Okay, every time a human person comes into existence, God creates a human soul, ex nihilo. Well, in, in these cases, we're, we're not thinking of, of something that, that pre-exists uh, in, in the potency of, of matter. Okay, we're, we're thinking of God bringing into existence from no pre-existing matter either this full-blown substance or, or this or this subsistent principle of substance, which is the human soul. Okay, in those cases, it seems to me that you don't really have that pre-existent potency, so to speak, outside the human mind, right? But it'd be better to, to say that those things are able to be through 
the power of the agent that is able to make them. So in other words, when, when you say a human soul uh, can exist, but doesn't exist, okay, the power that you're referring to, or, or the, the, the potency that you're referring to, is what St. Thomas will call the potentia activa of, of God, the active potency of God, the active power of God. So it's important to keep in mind here that potency can either be a passive potency or an active potency. So in Latin, St. Thomas distinguishes between potentia passiva and potentia activa. Potentia passiva, passive potency, that's the kind of potency that you find on the part of matter, whereas potentia activa is, is a potency to do or to make that, that belongs to an agent cause. Okay, so again, when we say that, let's say this new human soul that hasn't been created yet, it can be, but it isn't. When we say it can be, I think what we're saying is that is that there, there's an agent that's powerful enough to make it, and that that, that soul in some sense pre-exists in the power of that agent, in this case, God. So I think it seems to me that that's how we'd have to talk about it, lest we, lest we posit some, <laughs> some sort of you know, you know, fictional passive potency outside of the mind or something like that. I don't know. Does, it, does that does that help out a little bit, James, or does that obscure things even more? <laughs> no, that does that does make sense. I mean, creation ex nihilo is like its own kind of beast. I mean, it's not even right. Like, <laughs> yeah, um, but I was also thinking about it in the context of when Thomas talks about like I can know a man and I can know a phoenix. Yeah, I don't think phoenixes are in potency to exist. Right. Right. Yes. No, that's, that's good. And, and actually I, sh- I should mention this, that, that, that text, that particular text where St. Thomas brings up <laughs> the example of the Phoenix, that's one of those texts in the, in the Dante where, where, where different, different interpreters kind of go different ways. You know, some people will say, well, maybe St. Thomas thought that, that Phoenixes were really possible, but just unactualized or something like that. Whereas, whereas other commentators say, no, St. Thomas knew that a phoenix was an impossible being and therefore uh, can never be. So, yeah, depending on who you read, they'll, they'll say St. Thomas thought this or St. Thomas thought that. Uh, regarding the phoenix, I, I think, yeah, e- either way you go, what we're supposed to understand from that text is that we can understand what is meant by the name Phoenix, what is signified by the name Phoenix, without having to know that Phoenixes exist. So if you, if you say, okay, well, St. Thomas knew very well that a Phoenix was, was a mythical creature, and, and, and he knew that it was an impossible creature, or it was an impossible being, kind of like, kind of like maybe a centaur or a square circle or something like that. Well, okay, let that be. What he's saying is we, we can know what's signified by the name. So we, we have some concept uh, that, that is signified by the name. We have that concept in, in mind, even if that, that concept can never be instantiated outside of the mind. Huh? So that, that's one way to go with it, uh, is, is to say that, that the point is to show us that we can understand you know, something that's signified by name but without having to commit ourselves to saying we know that this thing determinately exists or, or doesn't. I raise a quick quibble. Uh, you, you mentioned 
square circle there. I don't, I don't think that's like a centaur or a phoenix, or I don't think we can have a, a, a I think it signifies nothing. I think yeah, it's just nonsense words jammed together or sensible words jammed together to make nonsense. Okay, good. Well, so, so there are, yeah. So let me, let, let me mention why I brought that up. So I, I know there are different, there are different takes on what's signified by square circle or four-sided triangle uh, and other such things, which, which obviously involve uh, contradictions. And so some, some philosophers, they'll, they'll say that the term square circle is actually meaningless, <laughs> that, that it doesn't signify anything at all. Now, I, my, my position, and this, this is in keeping with, with something that, that Charles de Conning, uh, points out and others point out is 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 this that that the the term square circle and and you know, of course feel free to disagree with this that square circle that term does signify something it now what it signifies involves a contradiction but it does signify something and a sign that it signifies something is that we can form a perfectly intelligible statement about square circles for example, we can say, we can say square circles cannot exist, right? We can form that statement, and and if we understand that statement to be true, which I think we do, uh, well, then something must be signified by the term square circle, right? I could and I could also say, hey, square circles are different from uh, four-sided triangles. Uh, they're they're both different kinds of non-being, or they're both uh, different. A species of non-being. Now, neither can exist. So the fact that we can, oh, and, and by the way, we can also define square circle. We can, if someone asks, what is a square circle? You could say a, a square circle is, is a plane figure, which is, is simultaneously contained by, by, by one line and, and four lines. Okay. That would be part of the definition at least. Right. Uh, likewise, is, isn't that to say, isn't that to say that you can think triangle? You can't think square circle. You can, well, you can say the words. You can say the word, yeah. But you can't think it. Good. Well, I think you can. You, you, you certainly can't. You can't imagine it, right? You, you can't imagine. Well, you it. can't imagine triangle either. It, it's a thing that can only be thought. Okay. So, okay. Yeah, I, I would say you can you you can imagine, you can imagine, you can imagine a triangle, a but, triangle. As, soon as, okay. but as right. soon as that's entered into your memory, it's not triangle anymore. Okay, it's so not yeah, a three-sided plane figure. That's a thing that's not imaginable. It's only thinkable. Okay, good. So yeah, you're making the yeah, you're making the distinction between the, the particular and, and the universal here, right? So I would yeah, so and I think that's I think you can't perfect. do either with square circle though. Can't <laughs> think it or imagine it. Okay. Well, what about this? Can can you can you think can you think a greatest prime number? Isn't it possible to think it enough such that we can define it? If someone asks us, what do we mean by greatest prime number? Well, by prime number we mean a number, and I'm going to use the, the strict Euclidean definition or the straight from Euclid. It's a number that's measurable only by the unit, right? Only by one. So. Uh, if that's what we mean by prime number, a number measurable only by the unit, then we add greatest to it. We, we mean a number measurable only by the unit uh, 
which has no number of that sort above it or greater than it or something along those lines. Okay, so, so we can give a, a pretty good definition of, of greatest prime number, which we all understand. I think we can all think that. But here's the thing. Euclid goes on to demonstrate that such a thing can't exist, that there is no such thing as a greatest prime number. In fact, he shows that there's, there's a contradiction in the very notion of greatest prime number. Now, here's, here's what's, what's kind of interesting is that the contradiction involved in greatest prime number, it's not on the surface, so to speak. It's, it's, more, it's more latent, it's more hidden. And there might be hidden contradictions in, in things like centaur or minotaur, or, you know, to use maybe more contemporary examples, you know, orc and, you know, halfling or something like that, right, uh, from, from Middle Earth. So now, are there contradictions in those things? Well, well, it might be, it might be hard to see. And you might have to give some sort of, some sort of reasoning or proof. It seems to me that the, the main difference between something like greatest prime number and square circle or, or four-sided triangle is that in the case of square circle, four-sided four side triangle, excuse me, the, the contradiction is, is more on the surface, right? As soon as, you, as soon as you say the terms, your mind grasps the, the contradiction. So would your position then have to hold that there is a hidden contradiction in Frodo or uh, something well, like this? Or is there another way to account for that kind of thing we have a definition for, uh, halfling, that we have a definition for but, but does not exist? Uh, yeah, so I, I would say this. And, and, and by the way, I, I'm, I'm not going to commit one way or the other as to whether, whether Frodo is an impossible being. Yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm sure that a greatest the greatest prime number is impossible. I'm I'm sure that a square circle is impossible. But I guess what I do here is is draw the distinction, which we which we find in Aristotle and Saint Thomas between a definition that signifies what we can call the the, the quid nominis, the what of the name, versus a definition that signifies uh, the quid rei, the what of the thing. Or sometimes sometimes these are given. The, these two definitions are given uh, the names nominal definition versus real definition, right? A nominal definition is a definition that, that simply that simply spells out the meaning of the name, that makes known the meaning of a name, whereas a real definition makes known what a thing is. So what, what I'm maintaining is, is that the definition that says what a square circle is, the definition that says what, a great, what greatest prime number is, is a definition that simply gives you the meaning of the name. And then we go on to, 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 to show in one way or another that there's, there's no quid rei, there's no what of a thing that can answer uh, to either of those definitions, either the definition of greatest prime number or the definition of, of square circle. And, and sometimes you, you might say, hey, I, I can give, I can give a, a definition that expresses the meaning of the name, but I'm not sure one way or the other, one way or the other, whether there's there's a quid rei that answers to that definition. So think of this, you know, think of the name Loch Ness monster, right? You can you can kind of give a definition from from the, the the supposed pictures of the creature and the sightings. You can kind of give a definition that gives the meaning of the name, 
But then you can ask, hey, is, is there something real that answers to that definition? And you might not know one way or the other, right? Until you, until you go and, and investigate. So, yeah. So this anyways, is, would, would Aquinas, I mean, this takes it a little bit of field, but would he, would he use, is this what he's getting at when he rejects Anselm's definition of God or the, or the proof, the ontological proof that he's giving a, a quid nominus that we can't know if uh, is quid re? Well, I think that, I, I think you're right, Joe, that's, that's intimately connected or, or, or this distinction between these two kinds of definitions is intimately connected to St. Thomas's consideration of and, and rejection of the ontological argument. Yeah, it, se- it seems to me that we have to bring we have to bring the following in, in, into this. We have to say that uh, in order for us to in order for us to know that something is is impossible. That is to say, in order for us to know that there's no what of the thing, there's no quid re that answers to the quid nominis, we, we have to see in some way or another that there's a contradiction, that there's a contradiction uh, that's signified by the quid nominis, right? Mm-hmm. And then you might say, you might say, you know, from kind of the other point of view, that in order for us to see that something is possible, that something is really possible, when I say that, I mean that, that something really has a quid rei that either is or can be. We, we have to see that, we have to see at some level and in some way that there is no contradiction uh, I- involved in, in the thing that's proposed to the mind, okay? And, and I think one way to kind of interpret St. Thomas, the reason why St. Thomas rejects the ontological argument is, is because he seems to think, and at least on my reading, St. Thomas seems to think that that St. Anselm goes from saying, I don't see any contradiction involved in saying that in which nothing greater can be thought. He goes, he goes from saying, I don't see any contradiction in that notion to saying, I see that there is no contradiction involved in that in which nothing greater can be thought. Okay. And, and those are two totally separate things. It's one thing to say, hey, I don't see a contradiction in this. It's a totally different thing to say, I see there is no contradiction in this. So, you know, when you ask me about Frodo uh, and, and Minotaurs and stuff, I, I might say to you, you know what? Maybe I don't see that there's a contradiction in those things, okay? But just because I don't see a contradiction in those things, does it, does it follow that there is no contradiction in those things? Absolutely not, Right. You know, when when we initially think greatest prime number, I, I don't think that we immediately see a contradiction in in that notion. I think we can say to ourselves, okay, given the definition of greatest prime number, I don't see a contradiction in that notion. Does it follow that there is no contradiction involved in that? No, it doesn't. And in fact, you can demonstrate that there is a contradiction there, which you don't initially see. By contrast with four-sided triangle and so on, you say, okay, well, as soon as I utter those terms, I, I, I see that there is a contradiction involved there. And so I say, therefore, there can't be any quid re that answers to the quid nominis, uh, if that makes some sense. So, yeah, so I think you're absolutely right that that this discussion totally bears on, on why St. Thomas rejects the ontological argument. And, and it seems to me that, that St. Thomas rightly says that that given our human mode of knowing, 
the way we most often come to see that there's, or come to understand that there's no contradiction in a thing is through seeing that that thing actually exists outside of the mind. And we say, okay, because it's actual, we know it's got to be possible. huh? And, and so if you ask St. Thomas, how do you come to know that, that God is possible? He would say, well, I, I show, I show through reasoning, through demonstration that God exists. And then knowing that God exists, knowing that there exists, you know, knowing through a middle term that there exists a, a being who is existence alone, I can say, well, now I know that a being that is existence alone is possible. So we know uh, by and large, you know, uh, possibility through actuality, through knowing actuality. It's really interesting to see how, how some of the, the different defenders of the ontological argument put it. Sometimes they'll say this, they'll say, they'll say, if a being whose essence and existence is possible, such a being is necessary. And I, and I think that's right. I mean, that's absolutely true. If, if such a being is possible, then such a being is necessary. Such a being couldn't exist contingently right? Because that would involve a contradiction. So if a being whose essence and existence is possible, then such a being is necessary. But the big question hiding in the shadows there is, well, how do we as human knowers come to know that such a being uh, is possible? And St. Thomas says it's through seeing, it's through coming to, to know that such a being actually exists. By the way, that, that formulation that I just gave you guys, that's one that, that Leibniz explicitly uh, makes in his work the monadology. He says, if some, such a being uh, is possible, a being whose essence is, is to exist, then such a being is necessary. He's not the only one that formulates it that way. I think you can find definitely the, the foundation for that in, in St. Anselm himself, uh, but other thinkers make that maybe more explicit in one way or another. So, yeah. Anyways, thanks for bringing that up. I think that's totally apropos. We can disagree about the meaningfulness or meaninglessness of of the term square circle. Uh, yeah, I got to rethink square circles now. And still be buddies. Yeah, yeah. No. Even. Well, so, uh, I, but I think that has. I mean, I this argument that he makes about the man and the phoenix is troubling to me, and I I think it has something to do with what we're talking about because I think I'm not sure that he's using the the word understand equivocally in both of those instances because the way we understand men and the way we understand a phoenix are not the same i don't think and moreover the only reason we know anything is because it exists and so like yeah so i'm not sure how to phrase my question like the way that we understand the only reason we know men is because we've bumped into them and they exist the reason we know phoenixes is because we've bumped into phoenix-like things, and in our imagination, we've like smushed together this idea. We've basically made a, a an artifact, basically. Um, but when you want to make it an argument like this, it, it's just a weird way of doing it. Well, so it maybe maybe uh, James, you know, you, you you could say, well, let's let's take that text and and just assume for the sake of argument, you know, that, that phoenixes are real or something like that. And then you could say, 
Well, if, if that's the case, then there really wouldn't be any difference in terms of how we come to understand what man is and, and what Phoenix is. Now, but I think apart from that particular text, I think doctrinally, what's most important to grasp is 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 this that that regardless of regardless of, of phoenixes and other mythical creatures, other fictional creatures, we can we can look at we can look at material substances in the world around us and and we can we can say, well, I I know that that dogs have existed, right? And maybe there's no dog in front of me right now, but I, I saw one yesterday. And so I, I know that what it is to be a dog is, is a real nature that can exist. But I also understand that since dogs are general and corruptible substances, well, if they've all gone out of existence since I saw the dog yesterday, well, I, I really do have a basis for, for saying that there's a difference between the nature of a dog and the existence of a dog. Those, those are two separate principles that I find uh, in, in a dog. And I can either know that through knowing something about the generability and corruptibility of, of dogs, or I can know that just by inspecting the nature of dog as I understand it and seeing that existence is, is not something uh, that necessarily belongs to that nature. Right, so it's one thing to understand what a dog is. It's another thing to ask the question, do dogs exist here and now? Well, maybe they do, maybe they don't. Anyways, I, I think yeah, that's... I, yeah, I see, I see what you mean, but I, I guess the way that I'm reading this argument is he's saying that I can understand what a man is. That is to say, I can understand what something that exists is or what a phoenix is, that is to say, something that doesn't exist is. Mm -hmm and yet not know whether they have existence in the real world. But it seems like you could say, the only reason you understand what a man is, is because it exists. And if you want to say that, you would then, like, you can't have that separation between understanding and existence that he seems to want to have. I see what you're saying. Well, I, I think I think you're right that we... You can understand a triangle and it, and yeah. you can understand triangle, mm -hmm. the nature of a triangle, just like you can understand the nature of a man. But, tr but triangles but aren't, aren't real. We made them up. Then they don't exist in the world. Well, so is the Phoenix, but the, but the, what's clear is that we can have an understanding of them. Well, but that's what we I'm can, getting at. We can is that understand our, a point. We can understand. Well, but that's, that's the, that's the point that I'm trying to make is that the way in which we understand a tri triangle, a tri triangle or men is different. One we make up and one is a real thing. Well, that's not what? a difference in, that's not a difference in understanding. That's, that's a difference in the way in which we come to understand the thing. And that proceeds from the kind of being it is. Well, I guess I'll, I can say it in this way, the way in which we understand men is that we make abstractions from real things so we arrive at we arrive at an understanding no we see a thing we, and we have the like process of our intellect right triangles we see things that are like triangles and then the process of our intellect goes to work and so there's a difference in the one hand we're actually seeing the thing 
And the other hand, we're not. And that's why triangles are like phoenixes. We're seeing things that are like like birds and you know things like that. And that seems to me to be those two things seem to be different to me. The understanding's well, not the understanding's not different. The ratiocination is different. So ratio and intellectus are two movements of the one intellect, right? They're two ways. Well, well, one's not a movement and one is a movement. So you're right. We we come to know what man is for by a, a su- succession of discursive acts um, that, that begin with a with a knowledge in the sense, right? We we encounter the being. Um so we see a man, right? Like I see you, right? <laughs> right? Uh, um, and then, and then this begins a discursive reasoning that arrives at a certain standing in the truth, which is an essential definition. Um, you can have an essential definition of triangle, even though you've never seen triangle. You can't see it. You've never seen Phoenix, but you can have an essential definition of one. By, by a certain composition of concepts. So immortality, flame, you know, bird, right? Like you, you, there's a certain composition that can come into the mind of a thing that's not, of a thing that's not real. And you can possess it as a point of intellection, intellectus, right? kind of understanding, a standing in the truth. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I wouldn't, I wouldn't, deny that you can't understand a triangle i'm just saying that the understanding must be different in some way because in a very real sense there is no such thing as triangle they do not exist and the and we only understand this is that's why god is the most knowable thing because he exists like in the in the mostest way he's like the most existing thing right and so like the more you move away from him, the less understandable things are. And so once you've moved away to so far from God that you're talking about things that don't actually exist at all, your understanding of those things must be like impoverished. That's, I think that's true. And isn't there, there's a comment that, I I mean, the most knowable thing to us is ourselves, right? Like once you, like you say rational animal, there's no more perfect essential definition of a thing that we can give because everything else is at a greater distance from us in our, in our intellect. So even a thing like, uh, and I was going to ask this about like square circle, um, can you give an essential definition of the thing? Uh, I don't, I don't know. And even something like a Phoenix, which we can have a concept of, I can't give an essential definition like rational animal like a two-word essential definition that captures the being of the thing i can't give that for a phoenix because because uh, it ha- it's composed of I all these probably things could. i think you right? probably could if i could I'd, I'd like to build on the distinction that brian made between just coming to understand versus uh, understanding i think that's really important here and it seemed to me that that james's question was in large part motivated by the fact that we come to understand what many things are through through seeing their 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 essence tied up with existence, uh, uh, you know, outside of the human mind. So, what if we were to 
just kind of do this thought experiment. Let, let's say, as, as even happens uh, these days, you came to be familiar with like the last member or members of, of some animal species that's going extinct, right? Sometimes they'll say, okay, at such and such a, a zoo, we have the last, you know, pair of, I don't know, whatever they happen to be, right? And, and if they die, the species is gone as far as we know. So let's say you, you see the, the last couple, you know, dodo birds or something like that, and then they pass away. Well, you certainly came to understand those those dodo birds in terms of what they are, right? You, you came to understand the nature of dodo bird by seeing it tied up with the existence of the dodo birds outside of your mind. That's for sure, right? But wouldn't we also say that when those dodo birds pass away, when they die, that doesn't affect our understanding of, of the nature? Huh? So in other words, we, we still have that nature in our mind, we still have an account of, of what of what dodo birds are in our mind. It's it's not affected at all by those birds dying. And so what does that what does that help us to see? I think that helps us to see that there there is a real distinction in the dodo bird between what it is, which remains in our mind, and its existence, uh, which which the nature is no longer uh, tied to out, outside of our mind. I wonder if that might be a way of you know, getting at your, your concern, James. Yeah. I mean, I think that doesn't make a certain, a certain amount of sense, but I, I would wonder if that would be like the case of, you know, the astronomer who knows the eclipse by mapping it and the person actually looking at it, those two, the knowledges of those two things are the same. I mean, I agree that the person who looks at the dodo and then it dies, nothing happens in their mind that like changes their understanding of it. But for everybody that's never seen a dodo, it's a lot. It's harder to understand. It's harder to understand the, the, do, the dodo, you know, because yeah. you don't see them. Um, Absolutely. Those those people who do see did see them. I think do have a different understanding of them than than everybody that didn't. E- even people who've seen a picture of them or video of them, right. the understanding is different. I, yeah, I'd agree with that, and I, and I think I think. It, it's true to say that when we we do things like look at dinosaur bones, right, or or fossil remains of, of whatever it happens to be, and then and then we try to to reconstruct the animal from from those remains, I, I think it's true to say that that in large part the concept that we come to have, the universal concept that we come to have based on uh, the the particulars that have been reconstructed, it's something that's well, it's a concept that might not, at the end of the day, answer to uh, to a, a quid rei that's out there, right? It might be, in large part, a kind of construct of of the human mind. By the way, if we if we had more time, I, I would love to defend the the reality of of triangles, even if they don't exist anywhere in the spatio-temporal universe. But we can we can leave that for another day. I know I know there's a class on on Euclid's elements. So maybe that's, maybe that's the proper place to, to do that. So uh, just to put a plug in for another class, but very good. Anyways, uh, for, for next time, we'll, we'll, we'll be looking at what St. Thomas has to say regarding the, the divine essence. He doesn't have a lot to say in this work. So I'm going to try to, to, to supplement it 
with with some other things that, that he teaches in other places, and I'll probably bring in as well uh, some uh, some of the Thomistic doctrine on the kinds of distinctions that we find between the different uh, divine attributes. I think that's something that's kind of prompted by the text, but it's certainly not uh, considered explicitly in the text. So, so that's something that uh, maybe hopefully we, we can look forward to thinking about together uh, next week. So let's just close with a brief prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Our Lady, seat of wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you guys for just an awesome uh, discussion tonight. I really enjoyed it. I hope you guys did too. And I look forward to our time together next week. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2021. Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. All rights reserved.